Every great magic trick consists of three acts. The first act is called The Riley and Kimmy Show. The Riley and Kimmy Show. And welcome to this Wednesday edition of The Riley and Kimmy Show, podcast number 1360. If you're listening to the day it's uploaded, September 6th, right next to me is... Janet! I got one name! Janet! Hi there. I am your host, Patrick Riley. I am the villain of the story. And right next to me is the hero of the story and all the episodes of the Riley and Kimmy show. That's Kimmy. Oh, she is strange, and I do like it. Welcome to the show, Kimmy. Hello. And how is Way Back Wednesday treating you? So far, so good. Well, we can't argue with that, right? It's very early on a on a Wednesday morning as we record this before sunrise. Let's see how Kimmy uh, operates today on this episode of the Riley and Kimmy Show. I have a question for you, Kimmy. How would you like to play nerd and pop culture trivia today? Woo, let's do it. <laughs> We have an adjusted timeline, meaning it's not in chronological order. We'll be asking Kimmy some questions from that timeline. Feel free to shout out answers to her. That's right, to whatever computing device you have the Riley and Kimmy show playing on right now. Could be anything, because we are mobile and we are global. First question we have for you, Kimmy, is probably one of your favorite categories. And that is movies. It was on this date, The King's Speech premieres. Give me the year within two years that the movie The King's Speech comes out. 2010. 2010. You got it exactly right. It wins Best Picture in 2011. With one year as a margin of error, it was on this date, the funeral of Diana, the Princess of Wales, is held. Give me the year. 1997. You got it exactly right. Moving back to movies, Kimmy. Looking for the name of the film. It premieres in Los Angeles on this date. And also looking for the year it comes out. We'll give you a plus or minus of five years. Here is an audio clue. Identify the movie. I don't believe it. How good is he? He's remarkable. He's an unprincipled, spoiled, conceited brat. I'm a vulgar man. But I assure you, my music is not. (laughs) Tell me the name of the movie, Kimmy. Amadeus? You got it exactly right. And give me the year within five years. 1990? You get it? Let me, wait a minute. She misses it by one. It's 1984 it came out. Premieres in Los Angeles on the state. Wins the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1985. It was on this date the first true supermarket opens up in the country, Kimmy. This opens up in Memphis, Tennessee. It is a Piggly Wiggly. Give me the year. Within 25 years, the first true supermarket opens up. Um, 1905? Wow. You guessed earlier than I actually thought you would have. You do get it within the 25. The year is 1916 that the very first... Uh, True supermarket opens up the Piggly Wiggly. 
was on this date, 1620. The pilgrims left on this ship from Plymouth, England, to settle in the New World. Tell me the name of the ship they were on. The Mayflower. Yes. Aren't you glad you paid attention in history class? Uh Uh-huh. It was on this date, Carnation processed its first can of evaporated milk. What year does this happen, Kimmy, within 25 years? 1950. You missed that one. It is 1899. Did you Have you ever drank evaporated milk? Have you ever used it? No. Now we're going to talk about something cold. Cold. That's right. Robert Perry, an American explorer, sent world that he had reached the North Pole... He did that on this date in history. He'd actually reached the goal five months earlier, but it got out that he reached it on this date. Tell me what year within 25 years did Robert Perry hit the North Pole, reach it? Mm, 1930. Within 25 years. Does Kimmy get it? Yes, she does. It was 1909 that he did that. It was on this date in 1935. Steamboat Round the Men, a film directed by John Ford and starring Will Rogers, is released. This is done weeks after Rogers' death. He died in an airplane accident. They still released the film. 1958, Georgia Gibbs performed on The Ed Sullivan Show. She sang this song, which reached number 32 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. Georgia Gibbs and the Hula Hoop song. She performed it on the Ed Sullivan Show. It reached number 32 on the Billboard Hot 100. And, uh, you know, I know some people that can't hula hoop, Kimmy. Yeah? Yeah, I do. Mm. Uh, have you ever owned a hula hoop? Mm-hmm. Okay. Moving 
to something else happening on this date in history. Music-wise, we're looking for an answer here, Kimmy. It was, a, it was on this date, 1982. This person released this single. The single reached number 53 in both the United Kingdom and the United States. Identify the recording artist. It's a tug of war. What with one thing and another, it's a tug of war. We expected more, but with one thing and another. Tug of War was released by whom? Paul McCartney. That's correct. Do you have that in your well on your vinyl or no CD or MP3 collection? No. Mm-mm. The year's 1982. This person's security album is released. The album is also known by something else. Here is a hit single from it from 1982. Tell me who the artist is. Identify the artist, Kimmy? Peter Gabriel. Yes. And that song there, that single from the album Security Album, or otherwise known as Peter Gabriel 4, did it hit the top 10 on Billboard's Hot 100 charts? The album? No, the single. Uh, the single. Yes. Yeah. Shock the Monkey. Yeah. No, it did not. It was no. number 29 on the Hot 100 charts Whoa. in 1982. Do you have that in your collection? Mm-hmm. Some, oh, all right. That's Peter Gabriel, 1982. It's 1989. The Pittsburgh Steelers were banned from practicing on their own field. This is at Three Rivers Stadium because this rock and roll band was rehearsing for their upcoming concert. Who had enough clout in 1989? What rock and roll band had that much pull, Kimmy? The Rolling Stones? Yes, the Rolling Stones. Staying in 1989, this group releases an album... We have the title track from that album from 1989. It hit number one on the top 40 charts. Identify the band. Don't worry about nothing because it won't take long. We're going to put you in the trance with our funky song. Because you got to be staying tough. Who is that, Kimmy? Um, I don't know. Number one from 1989. You do know who this is. It's a boy band. NSYNC? No, Kimmy, it's not NSYNC. It's the new kids on the block with Hangin' Tough. Okay. I have a feeling that's not on your MP3 player or anything, Mm, right? No. All right, moving to another section of trivia. It was on this date in history, Kimmy. I bet this is not even uh, in your library either. It's 2006. New Moon, the second book in the Twilight Saga, is published. It sells 5.3 million copies. I have a feeling you weren't one of the 5.3 million, correct? No. Celebrity and notable birthdays, actor Otto Kruger, born on this date, 1885. And the odd thing, he passed away on this date, his birthday, In 1974, he was 89 years old. He played the villain in the Hitchcock movie Saboteur, and he was uh, in many episodes on TV, many things, usually bad guys. He played on, um, well, in Perry Mason a few times as well. Next individual, an American actress, comedian, 
She was on Love American Style a couple of times, Love Boat, and in some films, really in theater. Also on game shows, talk shows. She did commercials, cartoons as well. And she's known for her work on Laugh-In. Identify who she is. Here is your audio clue, Kimmy. That's right, and Gypsy. Have you been out to Music Circus? Yes or no? I have been there many years, and you said you hadn't seen me. Saw me on Laughing. You have not seen me at Music Circus. You do. Are you familiar with Gypsy, the wonderful musical about the life of Gypsy Rosalie? Yeah, well, it chronicles her life. I play Mama Rose, which Ethel Merman did on Broadway. It's a fabulous role for any musical comedy person. Who is that, Kimmy? Joanne Worley. Oh, that's scary. You actually knew who that was. Tell me how old Joanne is today, within five years. 92. <laughs> Are you just, did you just throw out a high number? Do you actually believe she's 92 years old? Um... Okay, she is 80 today. I thought she was actually probably one of the the eldest members of Laugh-In at that time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she is 80 today. Next person, an original cast member of Saturday Night Live. She's had two TV shows of her own, or where she's been part of, I should say, outside of Saturday Night Live. But before SNL, she did commercials yeah, TV commercials. See if you can identify who she is. This is 18 milligrams of iron. Nutritionists say that most women should have 18 milligrams of iron in their daily diet. But in order to get that much iron, you'd probably have to overeat. And that's not good. So many of you may not get enough. That's not good either. A way to get it without overeating is to take one a day plus iron. That's good. Ten essential vitamins along with those milligrams. The daily iron allowance you need without overeating. One a day brand multivitamins plus iron. If you know what's good for you. Can you identify who that mystery person is, Kimmy? Mm, no. I'll give you an extra clue. She was a conehead. Oh, Jane Curtin. Yes. How old is Jane Curtin today within five years? Um, 70. You got it exactly right. Next person, the American stand-up comedian, actor. Identify him. Once you have, tell me how old he is within five years. Here's your audio clue. If you take your dog for a walk and you both use the tree at the corner, <laughs> you might be a redneck. Who is that? Oh, um. Yes. Yeah. Him. Him. Yes, him. That guy. Yeah, that guy. Um. Who is that? Can't. Jeff Foxworthy. Yes. Having a birthday today. He is 59. Next person, an American actor, a comedian, billed as the man of 10,000 sound effects. He is best known for his roles, Police Academy series. He did the movies and the TV shows. He also appeared as a radar operator in the movie Spaceballs, in which he performs all the sound effects during his scenes. Mel Brooks, who produced and directed that film, says he saved him a fortune. Tell me who he is, Kimmy. Michael Winslow? Yes, that's right. It's Michael Winslow having a birthday today. You've met Michael a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And while you think about how old he is within five years, I'm going to give you just a little audio bite. In 1985, he had a, well, a single come out. In 1985, Island Records released his I Am My Own Walkman. Sweet. There ain't a soul around that I can't read. I want to get my message all across the land. 
Winslow Kimmy, how old is he today within five years? Fifty-one? Mm, he is fifty-nine today. All right. I see dead people. Notable deaths on this date in history. 1952, Gertrude Lawrence passed away. Actress dies of liver and abdominal cancer at the age of 54. Now, you probably don't know who she is, Kimmy, but she was huge in film. According to the New York Times, 5,000 people crowded the intersection of East 55th Street and 5th Avenue in Manhattan, while 1,800 others, including Yul Brynner, Marlena Dietrich, also Phil Silvers, and many other celebrities, filled 5th Avenue Presbyterian Church for her funeral. The movie The Glass Menagerie was her only film that was a box office success. According to her biographer, Sheridan Morley, writing in 1981, that throughout the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, most traces of Gertrude Lawrence disappeared. She died before television had begun to immortalize its artists on videotape and before radio shows were regularly recorded. So she is a forgotten Hollywood person. Hmm. It was on this date, 1959, Edmund Gwynn passed away, died at the age of 81, best remembered for his role as Chris Kringle in the film Miracle on 34th Street in 1947. He won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Natalie Wood, a very young Natalie Wood, acted opposite of him. 1987, this television producer passes away at the age of 65. He had at least one TV series running in primetime every year for 21 straight years. That's from 1959 to 1980, an industry record. Now, to give you an example, certain TV shows had his name in the opening. It would say, Blank Production. Can you tell me the name of the production? You can tell me his name. Can you do it, Kimmy? No. Oh, yeah, I guess you didn't pay attention to the streets of San Francisco. <laughs> The Streets of San Francisco, a Quinn Martin production. Starring Carl Malden. Also starring Michael Douglas. You would see Quinn Martin on Barnaby Jones right when it opened as well, and Cannon, and The Fugitive, and things like that. That's Quinn Martin, 1987, passed away. 1990, Tom Fogarty, musician best known as rhythm guitarist for CCR, dies at the age of 48. And 2007, Alex, the African Grey Parrot, passed away at the age of 31. And very sad thing about Alex, too. Uh, Alex, uh, maybe one of the reasons we got an African Grey originally. Mm. I, I, I'm not, not certain about that. And the person who took care of Alex and researched the intelligence of the African Grey was uh, by the name of Pepperberg. And she reported that Alex seemed to show the intelligence of a five-year-old human in some respects. And she said he had not reached his full potential by the time he passed away. She believed that the bird possessed the emotional level of a human two-year-old at the time of his death. And we have an African gray, and I have to state that's probably true. Mm -hmm. And I urge people, please, really research before you adopt a parrot. Yes. Uh, especially in African Grey. They they need a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of attention. Um, I'm not trying to discourage you from doing that, but know what you're getting into ahead of time. And we have a link to the Alex Foundation on our website. They have information about that. 
parent care and just to get the the word out one how intelligent the african gray and parrots are and also the needs for the african gray please check that out you can find it on our website which is rileyandkimmy.com and if you know somebody who either has one or is thinking about getting a parrot have them check that out as well you can find that at rileyandkimmy.com that is the alex foundation Kimmy, it was on this date in 2015. This actor dies at the age of 83, known for two TV shows. He did movies, too, but known for two TV shows. First one is this show. Identify it when you can. Route 66. That's right. He starred on Route 66, and then he was on another TV show. Identify who he is from this clue. You know what this is? This black and white patrol car has an overhead valve V8 engine. It develops 325 horsepower at 4,800 RPMs. It accelerates from zero to 60 in seven seconds. It has a top speed of 120 miles an hour. It's equipped with a multi-channel DFE radio and an electronic siren capable of emitting three variables, wail, yelp, and alert. It also serves as an outside radio speaker and a public address system. The automobile has two shotgun racks, one attached to the bottom portion of the front seat, one in the vehicle trunk. Attached to the middle of the dash, illuminated by a single bulb, is a hot sheet desk. Fastened to which you will always make sure is the latest one off the teletype before you ever roll. It's your life insurance and mine. You take care of it, it'll take care of you. Gimme, tell me who that is. Martin Milner. And what is the TV show, that second TV show he starred in? Adam 12. Correct. Martin Milner passed away on this date, 2015, at the age of 83. Kimmy, I think you did a fantastic job on this Way Back Wednesday with trivia. Thank you. And what we're going to do, being a Way Back Wednesday, is go way back in time and honor somebody we talked about on trivia with the golden age of radio. That's the Riley and Kimmy Show. What we have here is a very special radio biography because, well, we mentioned that Gertrude Lawrence, the actress, passed away on this date in 1952. And in 1955, a very special radio biography was done about Gertrude Lawrence. It includes celebrities talking about her work with some examples as well. It's a fascinating biography that only radio could actually do. We have this. It's uninterrupted. It's safe for all ages. In honor of Gertrude Lawrence, here's her biography from 1955 on The Riley and Kimmy Show. Meet Gertrude Lawrence. Millions knew Gertrude Lawrence, the actress, before her untimely death. In the next hour, we'd like you to meet Gertrude Lawrence, the woman, seen through the eyes of her friends and family. At the moment, and I'll get out of the way so you can hear it, Gertrude is singing a song for the king and I. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Putting it my way, but now... 
I'm the author and co-producer of Gertrude's last musical show, The King and I. I knew her before she starred as Mrs. Anna, but never really well until we started to work in the play together. Before that, I was only one of a large and adoring public who followed her career from one triumph to another. A glamorous career, Gertrude climbed from nowhere to the very top. As an actress, she was a beloved figure to millions. But only a few knew her as the woman. In these fortunate few, she inspired deep affection. And of course, if you were a man and single and the right age, affection might easily turn to love. That's what happened to Richard Aldrich. He's a producer, too. Tall and lean, of New England Puritan stock. He managed a playhouse in Dennis, up in Cape Cod. Gertrude played there once, and Richard, who was reserved and taciturn and shy, Richard fell in love with her. They were married on a July 4th, and the next morning Richard called his mother in Groton to tell her the news. That morning when the telephone rang, I heard my mother... Barbara Aldrich, Richard's sister. I heard my mother say, You, you married Richard? And then she stopped, and I... I gas myself. I didn't know he was going to be married. And then she said, but who was Gertrude Lawrence? I nearly fainted. Gertrude Lawrence. I guess I almost screamed at her. I said, oh, mama, you must know Gertrude Lawrence. She is the most famous actress. Why, you stand in line to see her. Mama didn't say a word. She just looked as if someone had died. She said, how could Richard mix with such queer, unusual people, she said. An actress, she said. Well, you see, and Mama was brought up with the Pilgrim Code in mind, and she had her principles. She would never go against them. So an actress to her was, you know, something that you don't believe in. I used to write stories. I used to write them upstairs. And when people would come to call on us in Groton, and they'd ask for me, Mama would say, Barbara's upstairs taking a nap. She wouldn't tell them I was writing stories. She didn't think it was right. I guess we were a pretty stiff, frozen family. I mean, until Gertrude came into it. I mean, the town was the same way Groton was. I mean, if you've been away a year, and people that knew you since you were born would just say, how do you do? And they wouldn't say, I'm glad to see you. Well, anyway, Gertrude melted us all to pieces. She melted the town. She melted Mama. And she did a lot of things for us. She changed so many things. Mama was completely won over. Poor Gertrude. She said, I'm really sorry for her. She said, I sometimes think she must find us all so very, very dull. And she loved her and she was worried about herself because she couldn't unbend like Gertrude. Oh, it was touching. My cup of tea. Just as she won over Mama, so Gertrude made friends with her neighbors up in Cape Cod. On Broadway, a blazing international star. At Cape Cod, a gardener and club woman. No charity needed to ask twice for her help. No cause was too small to adopt. To all who came within Gertrude's wide circle of friends, she was thoughtful and considerate. I remember an endearing thing about her that I will always hold close to my heart. Helen Hayes. My daughter, who was just then 17 was about to open at Richard Aldrich's Playhouse in Dennis, Massachusetts. And they were rehearsing the play up there. And I was playing in New York in a play over the summer and was unable, of course, to go up to rehearsals for Mary's 
Only second role, I think, in the theater. Uh, about the middle of the week, I got a wire from Gertrude saying, You and Charlie, that's my husband, Charlie MacArthur, you and Charlie have never visited Richard and me in our house up here in Cape Cod. And don't you think it's about time we correct that? And don't you think it would be a nice idea for you to come up and spend the weekend now while Mary is rehearsing here? Well, anything unexpected and unplanned appeals to Charlie and me, so we jumped aboard a plane on a Sunday morning and went up. And Gertrude suggested that we wander over and see my daughter's dress rehearsal on Sunday night. She was to open, Mary was to open the next night uh, in the play. So on Sunday evening, we sat in the back of the darkened balcony, just Gertrude and me, and I watched, and I knew why Gertrude had been inspired to send that wire that particular time. Because Mary wasn't getting along so well in that role. She hadn't quite got on to it. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a little love scene, and Mary had never played a love scene before, and she was shy and awkward. And Gertrude had watched this at a few rehearsals and had sent for Mama to come up and uh, see if she could uh, lend a little aid. Gertrude and I never exchanged a word about it. I didn't turn and say, now I know why you sent for me, nor did she. Uh, we just knew. So we went back to Gertrude's house, that lovely house that she adored and worked over so hard. Gertrude and Mary and me. And Gertrude said, now I'm going to do what I like to do. I'm going out here and entertain these fellows. And took my husband and Richard, her husband, out onto the porch and left Mary and me in full control of the sitting room while we worked over Mary's part. This was Gertrude doing the thoughtful thing and the kind thing, always as gracefully as ever it could be done. On one subject, Gertrude and Richard were poles apart. That was spending money. Grady Harris, Gertrude's close friend, remembers a party. The year before she married Richard Aldrich, she gave a surprise birthday party for me in the Persian room of the plaza. The late Eddie Juchin and Johnny Green played double piano. Paul Draper danced and G sang a medley of her songs with a magic more incandescent than all the candles on the birthday cake. As if this weren't enough, she had the table piled high with gifts of every description. To her conservative future groom, a book or a box of candy was quite adequate. When he received his bill for buying half the perfume counter at Saks Fifth Avenue, I was sure that Gertrude Lawrence would never become Mrs. A. Gertrude was lavishly generous. Early in her career in London, an American vaudevillian named Clay Smith had given her a helping hand. Years later, she learned that Smith was a charity case in an institution, blind and penniless. She set aside a fund for him, a monthly allowance. And she sent him packages. Richard suggested that some old woolen shirts of his might go into a package. Gertrude shook her head. Not used clothes. And not useful ones. Silk shirts from sulkers, she said. He will feel the smooth silk. And it will remind him of old times. She loved to give everything away. You couldn't stop her. Again, Helen Hayes. Uh, got so one was afraid to admire anything. She might be wearing a beautiful jewel, and you say, Oh, what a lovely thing. I never saw it before. And maybe when you got home from wherever you were, you'd find this wrapped up in a, in a Kleenex in your uh, purse, where Gertrude had tucked it away because she was embarrassed about giving it to you. I remember she came out to our house in Nyack once for a weekend, and she had a lot of little beautiful 
uh, antique um, pillboxes and things with her. And I was looking at them beside her bed one uh, one morning and admired them. And when she left at the end of the weekend, there were the pillboxes tucked away, all wrapped up, because she knew if I saw them before she left the house, I'd thrust them back at her. You couldn't... Uh, you know, she was incorrigible in her generosity. She was the easiest touch in the world. Vinton Friedley, the producer. Any hard luck story, however far-fetched, seemed to touch her heart, and the consequent handouts were large and over-generous. Her gifts to the cast, to stage crew, and to our management at Christmas and anniversaries were really sometimes quite fabulous. What she made and what she earned seemed to be for the sole purpose of giving pleasure to others. She'd go into a shop. Constance Collier, the actress. And order several enormously expensive gifts for her friends and sometimes for her acquaintances. But she never gave you things that you needed. She gave you a luxury you never expected. A jeweled box. A sable stole. She'd send a dress to a chorus girl. She'd order someone to go to one of the most expensive dressmakers and get an outfit. Things she couldn't afford. But she liked to see the look on their faces. For it's bad for me, it's bad for me. This knowledge that you're going mad for me. I feel certain my friends would be glad for me. Still it's bad for me. Gertrude's generosity to others and her own love of luxury added up to an extravagance that became legendary. At one point, her financial affairs became so scrambled that a thorough overhauling was indicated. She was prevailed upon to turn over all her economic problems to the law firm of Fanny and David Holtzman. They promptly put her on a budget. Ultimately, it worked out, but for a while, the big problem was how to deal with Gertrude's evasions. She would go on wild buying sprees, charging all kinds of things at the stores and cautioning those near her, don't tell Miss Fanny or Mr. David. Gertrude's zest for spending may have stemmed from the property she had known as a child. Mary Margaret McBride. I'm going to let you listen to an interview that I did with Gertrude Lawrence almost ten years ago. I asked her about the way her family had to move from one place to another during her childhood. Yes, we were always on the go, depending on our finances, you know. We couldn't live in Army Street because we'd, we'd owed the rent. Well, then we packed up at night time and moved to Navy Street, <laughs> which was probably only a couple of streets away, but at least we did it while the landlord wasn't looking. That was called moonlight flitting. That was called a moonlight flit. 
Yes. Was that really a term that was used? Oh, yes. That's a, that's a well-known expression. When you want to dodge the landlord, you do it at, at night when it's dark. And do you remember she, if, you, if it wasn't a bad flit, then you kept the piano? Yes, if it was, if the, well, if, if we weren't hard up, we didn't have to move. But if, if we'd had hard times and the wind, the horses weren't coming in, in the right direction, in the right order, <laughs> then we had to move and back went the hired furniture and we moved with what, we, what belonged to us, as the pots and pans and probably a, a mattress. And then we'd go around the corner somewhere else and wait for fortune to smile on us again and then back would come the hired furniture. <laughs> You remember the first song that you cut out of the newspaper? Oh, you, it ain't all honey and it ain't all jam. Walking round the houses with a three-wheeled pram. Yes, that's right. <laughs> they, and, and then tell what happened uh, at Brighton Beach. Wasn't that where you sang it? Yes, I went... Uh, one of our very few good times, my mother and father took me down to Brighton, which is a seaside, seashore resort in England, we went down there for a Sunday. It was a lovely, lovely, broiling hot day, and they had a, uh, an amateur competition on the beach there for children or anybody who wanted to get up and sing or something. And uh, so I naturally wanted to get up and do something, being a precocious child of about eight. And being a child, they said, oh, let her go on, let her go up there. She's, she's all right, bless her heart. So up I got and I sang, there was I waiting at the church, waiting at the church, waiting at the church. And they get, I got a, a golden sovereign for it, which wasn't the prize, but the manager sort of gave it to me out of sympathy and, and uh, encouragement, I think. But that was the first money I ever earned. At a fairly tender age, Gertrude enrolled in a dancing school, Miss Italia Conti's Dancing School in London. There was another promising youngster there by the name of Noel Cowan. They became friends from the very beginning. Miss Conti's sister and her niece recalled the old school days. Noel and Gertie were very great friends. They used to say that I was a dragon. I don't know that I felt like a dragon, but then, of course, uh, they were naughty children. All, all clever children are naughty. Gertie was very intelligent, her... Her readings were very good of anything new. Her diction improved a great deal. It hadn't been very good when he first started with her. I remember being taken into the dressing room of Gertrude Lawrence when she was appearing in London. And I remember how delighted she was to meet my Aunt Italia Conte and reminisced with her for some time about... Um, the early days when she was at the school and uh, there was a piano in her dressing room and she struck some chords violently, discordantly and she said, that is my first recollection of you. When I came into the studio, you struck these chords uh, in this ghastly way and said, that is what your voice is like, Gertie, but I am going to make you quite different. We used to give her Lessons. We used to give her lessons in parts. She would study parts. She would study, well, naturally, Shakespeare. A few modern things, perhaps. But she was always wanting to work. She was a girl who had to work in order to live. She wasn't like a lot of young people nowadays who've got people to look after them. She had to work. 
those days, one of the top impresarios of London's West End was André Charlot. Gertie was not yet 18 when we first met, and her salary then was about $15 a week. From the very start, I was impressed by her amazing versatility. The only drawback to her uncanny vitality was a tendency to get carried away by childish pranks, completely devoid of malice, mind you, but so embarrassing that on three separate occasions I was obliged to drop her from her cast. However, Beatrice Philly became seriously ill during the rehearsals of my review, and I engaged Gertie to replace her, and was delighted to find that she had completely and permanently reformed. Of all the actresses it has been my lot to work with, I have never known one who could so quickly hit the bullseye during the early days of rehearsals. The right intonation, the right gesture, always seemed to come to her without the slightest effort. Her success in my New York review must live in the memory of many. Our company went to New York. Be Lily. And we arrived on Christmas Eve. Terrible snowstorm, terribly cold. We didn't know where we were going to stay. And somebody suggested the Ambassador Hotel. Well, we thought that sounded all right, the Ambassador. So we went there, the three of us. Jack Buchanan, Gertrude and myself. In the morning, we called each other up and said, how much was your breakfast? And we all said about $25 each or something. So we got out of there Quickly, but quickly. Oh, in New York, we had the most wonderful time. Everybody was so wonderful to us. We had parties every night. And we had a house in 54th Street, Gertrude and myself. 
and we entertain nearly every night. We have such people as Alec Wolcott, Mark Conley, Helen Hayes, Charlie MacArthur, Catherine Cornell, Jean Eagle, Bob Sherwood. Oh, I could go on and on and on. And Vincent Humans. He used to come there quite a lot. And we, we always had tea. It was a big thing, tea with us, of course. And that's what he composed in our um, house, Tea for Two. Gertrude's success in New York established her as an international star with devoted audiences on both sides of the Atlantic and friends in the most exalted ranks of society. Oh, Mother and I um, had a cottage on the Thames. Gertrude Lawrence. This was two or three years after I'd been in London. And um, the Prince of Wales was a great lover of the theatre. And my particular young gentleman friend at that time was his equerry, which is uh, his glorified aid. And so that was the way I met the Prince of Wales. And this one night, we were all going back to my house. I was being driven home back to the country to my mother, and uh, the Prince of Wales was with us. And so we stopped at his club and got a hamper of food and champagne, drove down to my house in the country, got Mother up out of bed, and didn't tell her who we had with us at all. And so she came down in her, in her curl papers and a wrapper, and we got the hamper out of the car and spread it on the dining room table under one of those awful hanging lamps with a bead shade, you know. And um, we all sat down and had a wonderful time, had supper, had some champagne, and we were talking and joking. All of a sudden, Mother looked across at me in a startled look shot across her face, but she'd suddenly heard the other boy who was with me address this other man as Sir. And uh, she knew that that meant royalty immediately. You either say Your Majesty or Sir. And uh, she shot this horrified look at me across the table, and then I, I went nodded at her and said, Don't say anything, don't, don't give it away, you know. And she didn't. She carried on absolutely beautifully until the end of supper. And then we got up and they went. And Mother and I followed them to the garden gate. And then she did a deep curtsy and said, Good night, Your Majesty. Now the Gertrude Lawrence legend was in the making. She appeared in George Gershwin's OK, in Noel Coward's Private Lives, and tonight at 8.30. In Susan and Guard and Skylark. As she went from triumph to triumph on the stage, she came to represent the essence of sophistication. Smart, gay, desirable, but elusive. She set fashions, became one of the best-dressed women in the world. Conservative critics called her a goddess and unashamedly declared their love for her in public print. Then she starred in Lady in the Dark and deliberately smashed the legend with her singing of the low-down... Jenny. There once was a girl named Jenny, whose virtues were buried in many, excepting that she was inclined always to make up her mind. And Jenny points the moral with which we cannot quarrel, as you will find. Jenny. 
trim the Christmas tree. Christmas Eve she lit the candles, threw the tapers away. Little Jenny was an orphan on Christmas Day. Jenny made her mind up when she was twelve that into foreign languages she would delve. August 17 to Bathur, it was quite a blow that in 27 languages she couldn't say no. Poor Jenny, bright as a penny, her equal would be hard to find. To Jenny I'm beholden, her heart would be and golden, but she wouldn't make up her mind. In foreign languages she couldn't say no. Jenny made her mind up at 22 To get herself a husband was the thing to do So she got herself all dolled up in her satins and furs She got herself a husband but he wasn't hers Jenny made her mind up at 39 She would take a trip to the Argentine She was only on vacation but the Latins agree Jenny was the one who started the good neighbor policy. Poor Jenny, bright as a penny, her equal would be hard to find. For passion doesn't vanish in Portuguese or Spanish, and she wouldn't make up her mind. She instituted the good neighbor policy. Jenny made her mind up at 75. She would live to be the oldest woman alive. But gin and rum and whiskey play such funny tricks. And Jenny kicked the bucket at 76. Jenny points a moral with which you cannot quarrel. Makes a lot of common sense. Jenny and her saga prove that you are gaga. If you don't keep sitting on the fence. Jenny and her story point the way to glory. To a man and woman Mama, you went to, with me to see Lady in the Dark. Again, Barbara Aldrich. And well, she had never seen a thing like that before. She didn't know exactly what was going on. And when Gertrude came out and sang Jenny, Gertrude looked straight at her. And she winked at her. Oh, Mama didn't say anything. She looked sort of startled. I mean, you know, when she did the bumps and everything. Mama had never seen anything like that before. When we got out in the street, I said, Oh, Mama, isn't she wonderful? I think she's... Isn't, you know how you go on. Mama said, Yes, I think she's very vivacious. And then she, she didn't say anything else. But three years after that, she said, Barbara, do you think that Gertrude looked at me? It seemed to me she looked right at me. That afternoon, we went to see Lady in the Dark, and I said, oh, yes, Mama, she did. She winked at you. And Mama said, well, that pleased me very much. She said, I've been thinking about it all these years. Poor Jenny, bright as a penny, a would be hard to find. Meet Gertrude Lawrence will continue after a brief pause for station identification. Four years brought Gertrude to a new and larger arena of action and service. She threw herself unsparingly into a dozen war activities, 
and then she made two hazardous tours to entertain the men of the fighting front. One to England and the continent, one to the South Pacific. The actress, Jessie Matthews, once Gertrude's understudy. We were all taking off from Normandy, and I suddenly walked into a room full of army officers, and suddenly Gertie turns around in uniform. We rushed across to each other, and I can't think what it was I said, but I know she roared with laughter with that lovely sense of humor, and she said, oh, my dear, it sounded just like a shallow opening. And then we met again on board the ship, when we never knew whether we'd get to the other side or not. It was all rather a, a nervous strain. And I remember Goethe's discipline then was so colossal because she sat down and opened a little case and started writing some letters. And I thought, well, there's lots of things I could do right now, but I'm quite certain I could never sit down and write a letter. When she toured England, entertaining troops... Winthrop Aldrich, ambassador to Britain. Her family was enlarged to include all who needed help. Gertrude Lawrence came home with a long list of people to whom she had sent food parcels. When the need grew beyond her own means, she enlisted the aid of her friends. Those who were in the habit of sending flowers to her for opening nights were told, kindly omit the flowers and send the equivalent for food packages. Gertrude went, she left behind her a trail of memories. For her many friends, she still lives in the stories they tell about her. Gertrude Lawrence needed four pieces of special material. Johnny Green, the songwriter. For nightclub work that she was going to do, recording work, etc. And Miss Lawrence paid uh, Eddie Heyman and me $250 for the four songs. One was called Body and Soul. She went back to London taking the songs with her. And one night, she did a broadcast over BBC at dinner time. And on this broadcast was the one and only time that she ever sang Body and Soul. But dressing to go to work was the famous English band leader, Bert Ambrose, who heard the broadcast, called Gertie up at BBC, asked her what the name of the song was, Whose song was it? How could he get it? All the usual questions. And Gertie Lawrence gave him a copy of it. And he started playing it in London. Well, the rest is the, the luckiest story of my life. And the nicest part is that Gertie Lawrence retained only a small token interest in the song and made it possible for Eddie Heyman and me to reap the benefits. I'll never forget a day three summers ago when we were both in London together. Grady Harris. It was 4th of July, G's birthday, and celebrating the event, we attended the garden party at the American Embassy, where some thousand guests were already milling all over the lawn. G, contemplating the scene, turned to our host, Ambassador and Mrs. Lewis Douglas, and said, how sweet of you to give this birthday party for me. Then there was the time that she decided she might like to spend her vacation in Bermuda. She cabled her friend, Mrs. Alan McMartin, the former Margot Graham, and asked if she could lease her beautiful island home for a few weeks. Margot cabled back that the house was hers for $10,000, including the boat and boatman. 
Whereupon the irrepressible G cable back, do you mean $10,000 or $1,000? If you mean $10,000, please send picture of the boatman. <laughs> Mr. Orridge, he wanted to go someplace, and of course that meant my taking him. Roosevelt, Gertrude's chauffeur. And of course she had already told me to take Angus Dog to the... What you'd call a dog beauty polish or such thing. That's what I always refer to it. But Mr. Orridge had wanted to make a business call someplace, and uh, he wanted to use the car, and Miss Lawrence said, well, Roosevelt's going to be busy, and he said, well, you aren't going out now. He says, no, but he's going to take Angus someplace. He said, well, don't you think it would be much nicer if Angus walked sometime? It would be good for him. She said, no, he doesn't like to walk. He likes to ride and sit up front and look out the window and look at the people. So... She suggested to Mr. Orridge that uh, Mr. Orridge that he should take a taxi, and Angus and I would take the limousine as usual. And so Mr. Orridge just came down and looked at me and shook his head and says, "Better luck next time." <laughs> when she was starring in Susan and God, Doctor Alan Claxton of the Broadway Temple Church, the drama critics and the columnists, as well as the church-going public engaged in frequent discussions concerning the convincing performance that she was giving on the stage. They also got into discussions about uh, Susan's conversations with God. It was at this same time that uh, the Oxford Group movement, headed by Dr. Frank Buckman, was sweeping the country with its emphasis on personal religion. Miss Gertrude Lawrence took a great interest in this uh, spiritual revival. And as a result of this, we invited her to... Uh, come to the Broadway Temple Methodist Church and make a statement concerning her faith and her basic philosophy of life. Uh, she accepted our invitation in such a gracious manner that, well, we decided to let Miss Lawrence deliver the sermon at a special Sunday evening service. In fact, we arranged a service. Uh, the appearance of celebrities at the Broadway Temple, it's not unusual, but I have to say that the arrival of Gertrude Lawrence made this occasion distinctly unusual. I remember as uh, we walked up the aisle of the church together to the pulpit, I felt that she came not so much as a preacher, though she was going to preach, but with the grace and poise and charm that made her such an outstanding actress. We felt a, a sense of modesty about her. She, she had a sincerity that put me and the congregation in a very receptive and open-hearted frame of mind. In her sermon, she told us of her firm reliance upon divine assistance in her work as well as in her private life. As I reconstruct her standing there now with the, the beauty and charm of her personality, no one could doubt that what she was saying was what she felt. Our dressing rooms at Susan and God faced the Imperial Theater. Leonard Lyons, the columnist. One afternoon when Gertie saw the line of people across the street of the Imperial she opened her window and blew a long fish horn and shouted, This way, folks, matinee of Susan and God. Right this way, folks, and get your tickets. She told me of the night she was doing a show with Doug Fairbanks, and a crowd of autograph hunters waited outside the stage door to get Fairbanks' autograph. A woman who saw Gertie leave asked for her autograph, and Gertie signed. An onlooker read the signature and said, Gertrude Lawrence, is she an actress? I don't know for sure, said the woman, but it's very nice writing. They didn't know for sure, but that was long ago. Yes, she was an actress. We've heard Gertrude sing in her very personal way. Now let's listen to her act in Jean Cocteau's The Human Voice. 
It's a story told entirely on the telephone. Here in the closing scenes, a woman of fading charms is bidding goodbye to her departing lover. Thank you. 
are said until tomorrow. No, no. No. No, I, I, I doubt it. One never knows. Oh, God. It, it, it's better like this. Much better. My darling, my, my dearest love. Gertrude was a disciplined worker, a tireless worker in the preparation of a new play. When we produced The King and I, there were no such thing as hours, no such thing as fatigue. I believe that The King and I, Mrs. Anna, was the greatest role that she ever played. And I believe she did more for this play than any other play she was ever in. Indeed, I'm not your servant, although you give me less than servant's pay. I'm a free and independent employee, employee. Because I'm a woman, you think like every woman, I have to be a slave or concubine. You conceited, self-indulgent, libertine, libertine. How I wish I'd told him that, right to his face. Libertine, and while we're on the subject, sire, there are certain goings on around this place that I wish to tell you I do not admire. I do not like polygamy or even moderate bigamy. I realize that in your eyes it clearly makes a prigamy, but I am from a civilized land called Wales, where men like you are kept in county jail. In your pursuit of treasure, you have mistresses who treasure you. They have no ken of other men beside whom they can measure you. A flock of sheep and you the only ram. No wonder you're the wonder of Siam. Oh, dear, I, I'm really rather glad I didn't say that. With all the women there. And the children. The children, the children, I'll not forget the children, no matter where I go, I'll always see those little faces looking up at me, your majesty. Shall I tell you what I think of you? You're spoiled. You're a conscientious worker, but you're spoiled. Giving credit where it's due. There is much I like in you. But it's also very true that you're spoiled. Everybody's always bowing to the king. Everybody has to grovel to the king. By your Buddha, you are blessed. By your ladies, you're correct. But 
I find a most disgusting exhibition. I wouldn't ask a Siamese cat to demonstrate his loyalty by taking that ridiculous position. How would you like it if you were a man playing the part of a toad, crawling around on your elbows and knees, eating the dust in the road? Toads! Toads! All of your people are toads! Yes, Your Majesty, no. Your Majesty, tell us how low to go. Your Majesty, make some more decrees. Your Majesty, don't let us up of our knees. Your Majesty, give us a kick if you please. Your Majesty, give us a kick if you would. Your Majesty. Oh, oh, that was good. Your Majesty. Up in Boston, while she was giving a performance every night. We asked her to learn a new song, which we decided to put into the show there. It was called Getting to Know You. She loved it when we played it for her. She rehearsed it. And the first night that she sang it, it was obvious that this was something very important to the play. Because she caught the spirit of love for these little Siamese children. It's a very ancient saying, but a true and honest thought that if you become a teacher, by your pupils you'll be taught. As a teacher, I've been learning, and forgive me if I boast, that I've now become an expert on the subject I like most. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you, getting to love to hope you like me, getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely, you are precisely my cup of tea, getting to know you, getting to feel would follow the heaviest of schedules. Although the king and I required eight strenuous performances a week, she found time to teach a class in acting at Columbia University and to carry on many other activities. Only occasionally did she take a holiday. One such occasion was the reunion of Richard's class at Harvard. We were delighted to see Dick and his wife at the Harvard reunion. Stanley Marcus of Dallas. It was a pretty gay affair, with lots of memories and lots of looking back. The wives put on a skit of their own. Fleur Coles was in charge, and on the committee were Francesca Lodge, my wife, and Mrs. A. It was a review, and Mrs. A was part of the chorus line. She had as good a time as everybody did watching her. Well, the review ended, and then a clamor went up for Mrs. A to sing a song. She did. She sang a lot of them. 
The orchestra struck up a tune, and Mrs. A sang not one song, but an hour full of songs. It was really wonderful. At the end of that hour, the entire reunion class broke out into a cheer. That doesn't happen very often, you know. A long Harvard cheer, loud and strong, for Mrs. Aldridge. She was thrilled, though she looked pale and tired. But I do know she was thrilled. She did look pale and tired, and it wasn't entirely the result of that evening's merriment. Don't do too much, the doctors warned Gertrude, but there was nothing specifically that they banned. And that was all the excuse she needed for carrying on exactly as before. A lot of people think of people in show business as an easy task. Again, Roosevelt. But uh, I, too, had felt that way until I'd seen the way she'd gone through. She worked very hard, exceedingly hard. She'd get in the back seat of the car sometimes, and most times she liked to ride up front with me. But uh, I'd pick her up, and she just would flop down in the back seat of the car, and uh, once or twice she would cry, and I'd say to her, what's wrong? She would say, well, she just didn't feel good. The strain was becoming more and more noticeable, and uh, she'd had some time off, and she had returned back to the theater, which was a matinee. And uh, after the matinee, I took her to the hospital. Regretful to all, she never came out. From the pages of his book, which he has called Gertrude Lawrence as Mrs. A, Richard Aldrich reads the passage that, for him, comes nearest to capturing the woman who was his wife. It wasn't exactly her beauty in the conventional sense. Gertrude had something far more arresting and more unforgettable than beauty. A vitality, a zest for life that brought a glow to all who stood in her presence. Nor was it just a theatrical gift. It was the essence of her whole being. The word that comes closest to it is radiance. Gertrude Lawrence, your narrator was Oscar Hammerstein. And you heard transcribed the voices of Helen Hayes, Beatrice Lilly, Winthrop Aldrich, Leonard Lyons, Johnny Green, and others. The book Gertrude Lawrence as Mrs. A was published by Greystone Press. Meet Gertrude Lawrence was an NBC News production by Bill Weinstein.
If you enjoyed that golden age of radio production, be sure to follow the Riley and Kimmy show. We feature old-time radio shows from time to time. We have archived episodes available right now on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. Some of them have old-time radio episodes on them. Please tell your friends about the Riley and Kimmy show. Help us grow. Our social media links are available on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. That's R-I-L-E-Y and Kimmy, K-I-M-M-Y.com. If you friend, follow, and like us, we will friend and follow you back. Also, be sure to check out our website, events page, and our social media pages for updates where the Riley and Kimmy show will be appearing next. And we're available for your pop culture event and also those that are animal-based, about pets and animals too. We have a spinoff show called Animal Special. So be sure to tell your friends about us. It's the Riley and Kimmy show, the nerd variety talk show with daily pop culture episodes. The Riley and Kimmy Show. Find archive podcasts of The Riley and Kimmy Show at RileyandKimmy.com.